Hey, listen, uh, again, welcome this morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, as I mentioned during the announcement portion, uh, uh, yeah, I'm feeling very encouraged uh, as your pastor, as one of the elders here at the Rock Church. We also, besides the meeting we had last Wednesday, Wednesday to be talking about the visioning forward of our building and services, we had an elders meeting at uh, our home yesterday morning. I think it went, went well over three hours, but it was also incredibly encouraging. So to be sitting at a table with uh, four other guys and, and, and who are representative of themselves, of course, but also of their wives and this church family, and just the discussions and so forth was, ah, thank you. <laughs> if you have a Bible with you, and I'm going to stress this again this morning, it really would be a good idea to have a Bible with you. And I want to encourage parents, by the way, because Elevation Youth is not happening these days because Ali had a baby, go figure, and which is awesome. Um, yeah, I would encourage you to have your youth uh, in, this, in the gathering with you and have a Bible open. And let's, let's show our young men and women what it looks like to follow on in God's Word on a Sunday morning. I think that would be really awesome. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12 this morning. Uh, so in our text today, we're continuing in this amazing series. And uh, amazing not because of who's preaching, but just Peter's words to the church. The churches in Asia Minor in those days. Here we have... Just five verses. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you're thinking, like, Glenn, we could go a little quicker, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, there's so much amazing teaching here. And so I'm hoping today that we will hear more deeply, understand more deeply Peter's purpose for writing this letter. And we've been going over that a few times, but it needs to be highlighted. This man was purposeful. He knew there were issues going on there. He had contributed to planting these churches. He was a, an apostle, yes, but he's a pastor, and he loves these people, and he's concerned for them. And he wants them to grow and get stronger in their faith. And so that's why he's reading it and writing these letters. We've also learned the context that they lived in in those days was, was different in some respects as ours, from ours, pardon me, but by the same token, incredible parallels, incredible parallels when it comes to suffering and persecution for the sake of your and my obedience to the word of God. That's why they were being persecuted in that day. They were being obedient. Their, their lifestyles had changed so dramatically that it was actually condemning, at least that's what the culture thought, the culture. They had just changed, radically changed from their previous Gentile pagan ways. So his primary goal was to encourage them to persevere in their faith, to continue in their faith in a hostile world and culture toward their newfound faith in Jesus Christ, a world in which they now felt, strangely enough, where they had grown up and been born in most cases, they felt like exiles. They felt like complete foreigners and strangers, like, wasn't this our home? Actually, no, not anymore. And Peter wants them to get that and to understand that. And I want us to get that, church. I need to get that. And so after reminding them of the gospel, the goodness of God in Christ, he spends the last chapter, chapter 2, and the first 12 verses of chapter 3, teaching them how to live out their new found faith as a brand new society. People who belong to a completely different world, the kingdom of God. It's a mindset, it's a shift that has to take place. They had never heard of this before. They, they had no idea what that was about. That's why he's teaching them. And for some of us, it's the same thing. We don't understand that. And it translates today very well, as far as I'm concerned, because myself included, I once identified as, you know, a, a, a member of the Dominion of Canada. 
Okay, technically I still am, right? But that was my kingdom. That was my world dominion of Canada. That's what it's officially called. Or, or of the world, you know, like the, the great secular world. That was my life. That was my kingdom. That's what I belong to. I'm still living in it. But as I've learned as a Christian, I'm now actually a citizen of a brand new kingdom. Well, not brand new, but brand new to me. And, and it's a mind shift that we need to make. And if, if and when we actually make it, really make that mind shift, then we're going to arrive at something that we're going to see today that's in our text, which is what we all want. But as Christians, it does require a shift of mind. So today we arrive at the fifth and final section of Peter's words on what have been deemed to be called the household codes, where he will direct and express his concern for everyone in the churches, everyone in the churches. His teaching here is intended to exhort every Christian, every believer in Jesus Christ on how they are to behave in general and specifically how to live circumspectly and in some cases not drawing attention to themselves in a world that opposes, listen, both their lifestyle and potentially even their very existence. It gets worse in Asia Minor in five or six years. So read the text with me, verses 8 to 12. I'll pray one more time and we'll dive in. So you can tell Peter is concluding when he says, Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing for or because... Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for such a wonderful day, Lord, to come into uh, a house of worship, a place of worship this morning. And yes, Lord, that's what we've been doing. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we were given the opportunity this morning to lift our, our voices and our hearts and worship towards you through, through song and through the, the lyrics of some of those songs, which were so beautiful, speaking of you and your goodness towards us. So Lord, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. <laughs> We're here. We bear your name as Christians. And Holy Spirit, we're also here because you've done the work of bringing new life into our hearts, into our bodies, into our minds, into our souls. And so we thank you. We need your help today, Holy Spirit. I need your help. Help us to, to hear the words of Peter afresh. Help us to understand them as they apply to us here today. And so I pray your blessings upon us now in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So I don't know if uh, all of you remember, uh, but we went through a series back in the fall, I believe it was, and I think we started in September. It was taken from the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody remember the title of that series, right? You just hope sometimes people remember these things, right? Well, the title of it was called The Good Life, Human Flourishing According to Jesus. 
And so what we saw in that series is that Jesus is about 12 to 18 months into his earthly ministry. He heads up a mountain. He, he stops, commentators believe, somewhere about midway on a bit of a flat spot. And, and his disciples, they all come around at his feet there, the, the 12 apostles, but also all of the others who were considered disciples in those days who were following him, men and women, and they're at his feet. But there's also a great throng of men and women who are standing out in front of him and down the hill. That's why he goes up the hill. He doesn't have one of these handy-dandy little devices on his cheek. And so his voice will carry, and he, he can preach. And as he looks out on that particular day, he, he, he assesses the crowd, I believe, and that's what we suggested in that series. I mean, he knows the crowd. He's Jesus. He's man, but he's also God in the flesh. And he sees before him two groups of people who have two divergent worldviews. And yet, there's similarities. He sees before him what have become to be known the Second Temple Jewish believers uh, who had a worldview which was basically this. In order to attain the good life uh, and, and actually flourish as a human being, you need to be someone who really does a really good job of keeping the law. Because if you keep the law and, and you do what the law says, then God's kind of on the hook. You know, he has to bless you. He has to give you a good life, many children, lots of animals, and all the rest of it. So it was based on that worldview. But he also knew that in front of him were people who were from a Greco-Roman background. Not many, but there were some Roman soldiers who show up later in the whole gospel accounts, but also others who were following around and wondering about this amazing healer. And their worldview was similar but different. They were, of course, from what would be considered today a very secular, humanistic worldview, where they had their own moral code, and specifically a moral code of ethics. There's certain ways that you live in our society and you behave, and again, the better you do at keeping those moral codes and ethics, the chances of you having a good life, a flourishing life, are better and greater. Similar to the worldview today, do you think? Very similar. And sometimes, unfortunately, maybe similar also in the church. So when Jesus opened his his mouth, and you remember the Greek word that he opened with? He he, he just said, he's just looked at the audience and he goes, makarios. I pronounced it really well, didn't I? That's the Greek word, right? Now, when they heard that word, which is translated in chapter 5 of Matthew as blessed, he got their attention, all of them, both worldviews. He truly got their attention when he said that. And as we learned in that series, however, our modern translations actually lose a bit in translation because that word blessed today is not quite understand by us today. We tried to fix that in the series as it would have been in that day because when they heard that word, they actually would have heard something more similar to the English word flourishing. And that's where the whole idea of human flourishing actually comes from. So therefore, as I said, at that point, Jesus had their attention. They're like, this is great. (laughs) He starts, Makarios, that's great, right? Because in their minds, he's now going to go on and give them the most amazing self-help seminar, like way before Tony Robbins, and they are going to be, because of this teaching, know how to live the good life better than ever before. Boy, were they surprised. Because Jesus went on to say in Matthew 5, 3, Flourishing are the poor in spirit. For those, theirs is, pardon me, what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. At that point, most of them are going, say what? (laughs) What? Excuse me, great teacher, what was that? Well, he goes on after that and he says, continues with flourishing are those who mourn. 
and, and, and followed by those who are meek. Meekness was not a, a code of ethic or something to you know, aspire to in, the, in that culture in that day. Who are hungry and thirsty, thirsty, of course, for righteousness' sake. Those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. And then wait for it. Those who are persecuted, reviled, and those who are falsely accused of all kinds of evil. Again, the refrain in that culture by both worldviews would have been, excuse me, what, what are you saying? Well, what we learned overall in that series that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God is the, and I love this, I've, I've been corrected by a commentator that I read and I really love it. It's the kingdom, uh, it's the upside right kingdom, right? But oftentimes it feels it's the upside down. No, no, it's the upside right. What we live in or we're living in is the upside down or the right side, whatever. You, you know what I'm saying. I, I still can't get it right. But this is the upside right kingdom that he's presenting to them, right? And uh, yeah, so those of you, uh, uh, us who are in Christ, and I hope that is everyone present or watching online, we are now members of the kingdom of God. We're his children, and we're members of this kingdom. And it's simple, right? We get that. The moment we're saved, we get that, right? Well, First Peter. <laughs> that's, that's why he's writing it. Remember last week I said he's writing it to because out of Second Peter chapter 3, he's talking about, I need you to remember some things. And so he's trying to press that into them. It's a huge paradigm shift, I would think. It, was, it has been in my life, a huge paradigm shift that many Christians not only struggle with, but listen, sometimes slip back into the posture of having one foot where? In the world and one foot in the kingdom. And I always state at that point, that can be uncomfortable, right? But the reality is it also will not lead to the good life. As a Christian, it will stunt and potentially stymie our experience of the good life. And so this is exactly why Peter writes his letter to the churches. And this passage in particular is critical. The good life is right there in the passage. And some of you are going, really? Okay, well, let me show you. Actually, let's jump to verse 10 first, and it'll show you right there. He's quoting from Psalm 34 when he says in verse 10a, whosoever desires to what? Love life and to see good days. Does anybody in this room desire to love life? Do you, do you not love it from time to time? Like in the good and the bad, right? Do you want to have more, see more good days? Of course we do. And so it's remarkable. He's quoting Psalm 34, and you can see he's re referring to, frankly, the good life. The life that everyone wants to live, that you and I want to live. And so once again then, as we've seen repeatedly in this series and letter, these newfound Christians in Asia Minor who were from a Greco-Roman pagan background, they knew from, the, from little children being raised in, in Greco-Roman homes, they knew the moral ethical codes that would lead to human flourishing. It was drilled into them. They, they learned it in school. It was drilled into them. So they knew exactly what it looked like. They, they tried hard, like you and I have tried hard, to live that way, to get better, to be a better person, to live the good life. And you know what they found? It didn't work. <laughs> Just had to try harder and harder and harder, and they kept failing. And so they knew that, and they, were, they would look back, and it wasn't working. They'd given themselves to it. But now they're Christians, 
And they're members of this thing that they hear from the apostles on a repeated basis, this thing called the kingdom of God. Well, where is it? How do I, like, where's the gate? How do I get in there? Like, how do we separate ourselves from the, the rest of this stuff and so that we can just really live that? And so they need training on that, and they need to be taught about that. They've got a lot to learn about what it means to live the good life as a member of that kingdom. Anybody? I think we do. Come on. I do. I think we need to continually learn these things. So especially since their newfound lifestyle and beliefs, listen, are causing them suffering and persecution from their previous, listen, family, family, friends, and community. And that's where Peter starts here today. He begins by speaking into and teaching them about how they are to live the good life of the kingdom in their new blood-bought family of God. That's what the first verse is all about. Look at verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So finally, he's not finished his letter yet, obviously, but finally he's concluding a section Peter says, after speaking more directly, as we've seen in weeks previously, to, to servants, slaves who have masters, but now you're Christians, how do I behave towards my master now that I'm a Christian? Don't I demand my freedom? Well, we'll get there, maybe a thousand years from now, but you'll get there. But no, for now, here's how you need to behave. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. And then, and then he moves on, of course, to either spouse, husbands and wives. Last week, that was fun, wasn't it? Amen? Hello, everyone. Yeah. Now he wants to speak to the whole church. So this letter that he's written, that's being read in the churches, he's now saying to, okay, by the way, every single one of you, man, woman, child, servant, master, husband, wife, doesn't matter. This is for all of you in the church, in the family of God. And the first thing, and actually what he was going to do, he's going to give us five bullet points, but the first thing that he highlights is really important. And I'm going to spend most of our time this morning on this. He speaks about have unity of mind. Unity. Hmm. So for some of us to best understand what Peter is getting at here when he says unity of mind, or actually as some translations translate it, they translate it, live in harmony with one another. We need to again consider their context and the verses that follow in the text today. They bring a lot of clarity, I believe, when it comes to application for you and I today. So the whole, we got, we got to think about the whole passage and as it will give us clarity about the unity of mind that Peter is speaking about that we need, must have in the local church in order that we together live the good life. That's the goal. So they bring a lot of clarity, as they said. Nothing makes, listen, unity of any kind or harmony in the family more difficult than when there is outside pressure, especially due to persecution. So let's think about the example of how that works out in the nuclear family. Remember how George W. Bush, whatever, he used to, nuclear, I don't know, he got it. Oh, that word was, I, now I, I have a trouble pronouncing that word. It's all his fault. But consider the nuclear family uh, for a moment and how parents might feel. I'm a parent. You know, I still remember. Uh, when, when they see their teenage child being pressured by their peers. 
To do what? Well, okay, so, well, I know my parents were like, well, yeah, Glenn's being pressured to smoke, and at 15 and a half years of age, he's smoking cigarettes. That didn't go over well in my home, right? But they're, but they're being pressured. Oh, how about watching TV shows and movies and listening to music and following certain rock stars or pop idols that, hold on, what's their message? And worse, what if the peer pressure is leading some of our children to experiment with drugs and alcohol and sex? If you're not there yet as a parent and you have teenage children, and listen, it, it, that can create a lot of disharmony in the home. Anybody. It can, right? Uh, husbands and wives can start fighting with each other because you're not, you're not talking to your son the way you should. You're, you're, not, look at, you're letting your daughter dress like that? On and on it goes. Disharmony can show up in the local family. Why? Because of the pressure of peers from outside, the family. So the unity of mind that Peter's referring to here is not so much related to, listen, doctrinal unity. Not that that's not incredibly important. We'll come back to that. He's speaking about the unity within the church family and how that unity can be stressed, even divided, due to outside pressure. So to truly grasp that sense or the sense that Peter and, frankly, the whole early church felt about one another, we need to visit a few scriptures to see that. How it was lived out in that day. How, how they initially adopted this whole idea of blood-bought family and the priority that that had over them. And yet, even in the early church, it started to change. Acts 2, of course, which won't be on screen, but... You all know how the church was born, right? Peter preaches this amazing, amazing sermon. People are cut to the heart due to the Holy Spirit. They ask Peter, what should we do? Because <laughs> we're guilty. And he says, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, three to 4,000 souls were baptized and came into the, and the church began. Acts 2, 42 to 47 talks about it, and you read about it. They were so amazed to be part of this new family that they wanted to be together every day of the week, breaking bread from home to home, and all having all things in common. We read that. And the Lord added daily, in verse 47, to their number, to the family of God. And then we get to Acts 42, and a repeat of that happens in verse 32. Now it'll be on screen. The full number of those who believed, listen, This is written by Dr. Luke, who had interviewed the apostles, and they told him this, and that's why he writes this. So it's a true statement. And he says, now the full number, so in other words, all of them who believed were of one heart and soul. Have you ever in your Christian life been part of a church where that was true? Okay, we'll get there. And no one said, look at this that any of the things that belonged to him or her was his own, but they held everything in common. Yeah, Glenn, by the way, that snowblower, that's not just yours. (laughs) So the next storm that comes along, you lend it to your church family, okay? It's available, just so you know. No, really, this this is a true statement. Their love and affection and realization that they needed each other and they were called to be, as the highest priority, a blood-bought family in their lives was established. They understood it. They not just needed it, they believed it. 
because they saw some amazing things happening in their midst. Well, years later, Paul has to write in 1 Corinthians to the church. Things seem to have changed a little bit. You can tell by the language. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is Paul's language for saying, listen, I'm begging you. I beseech you in the King James, right? Brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm bringing authority onto this statement. That all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Why does he have to write that letter to the church in Corinth? Because they're not some of these things. And it's causing a problem. They're not experiencing the good life. Some of them are actually walking away. He writes to the church in Philippi in chapter 2, verse 2. Here's how you could make me happy, church. (laughs) Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Does this sound at all like Peter? Right? It's the same thing. So for the first century church, their sense of belonging, love, and loyalty was to their church family first of all. Many had literally left or been cast out of their nuclear families. Yeah, you're shunned, you're out. We'll have nothing to do with you. And this Jesus, him being the only way, and the lifestyle that you... And and you're judging us because we don't agree with you. Yeah, done. It's over. That's just true. That happens today, too, by the way. Maybe not so much in Canada. Maybe it should. It would be better. If it was more obvious, it would be better. Because that's what happens in China. It's what happens in Iraq and Iran and in Turkey if you become a Christian. So this was the reality for them. It's a problem in our North American culture, though, isn't it? You all know my background. And for Nick's sake, I'm not going to tell you what my profession was. But you all know it. And so it's very, it's very obvious to me, right? Very obvious to me. I think it is for you, too. But on our North American concept, uh, this is really hard for Christians to get, right? Especially young Christians. And I'm going to be really, really frank here. The world of, okay, I'm going to say the word marketing, right? Thank you so much, Hallmark. Causes you and I to spend billions of dollars every year just to be home for Christmas. Why? Because mom, dad, grandparents, aunts and uncles, in-laws and outlaws, yes, are a higher priority. I'm not condemning anybody. Please hear me. I've preached sermons like this before, and people have gotten really angry with me. I get it. Okay? I do get it. But think about it. Because listen, there's no question in my mind that not just the world of capital M, but just the world in general does not want you to believe the church family is the highest priority in your life. They don't want you to believe that. It's why they offer you everything else. Hey, check the box on Sunday, maybe once a week, and meet with a bunch of Christians for a potluck, and hey, you're done. It's supposed to be much, much more and deeper than that. It's supposed to be a huge priority. And friends, it's what is causing us to have real difficulty having unity of mind. And so that's what he's at. Here's what Peter is getting at with the words unity of mind. As a result of the pressure pressure that you and I will 
experience from outside the church, attacks on what we believe, attacks on our statement of faith on our website, yes, because that has happened, our faithful adherence to the traditional teachings of the church, to orthodoxy that we've been learning about in this series, when those attacks come against our church, our pastors, our elders, and other members of our church, what do we do? I'll tell you what Peter is imploring us to do. Protect one another. Stand up for the truth. Have each other's backs. Be of one mind on these things. And friends, I'm going to suggest this to you. That takes a lot of work. (laughs) And not just a lot of preaching. It takes a lot of work on all of our parts to maintain that and to protect it. Why? Because it's precious. It's what makes us a church. It's what makes us a healthy church. So this unity in mind, we'll put back on screen uh, verse 8 again. Harmony flows out of the next four attributes, doesn't it? It flows out of that. The first attribute is the word or the attribute, sympathy. So, so it's important within the, the family of God. Oh boy, I've learned this, and I'm sure some of you have also learned this. It's really important that we, we have an understanding mindset towards each other. The young believer, the older believer, the deconstructing believer. We've got to have sympathy that we're not all at the same place. We have to have sympathetic hearts towards one another. We're not all there. We don't all understand this this kingdom life yet. The clear teachings of the word of God and those who are struggling to accept and understand those same ways and teachings. None of us have fully arrived at full knowledge, have we? Anybody? If you put your hand up, you need to leave. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't. I haven't. I haven't. I know I preach boldly. I preach like I know what I'm talking about, but I, I think I do when I get up to talk about it. But no, we've not achieved that yet. Most of us have either been wrong before or way off before. And so, sympathy is a key. That then is backed up by the following. Brotherly, sisterly love. That includes, quote, quote, forgiveness. (laughs) Right? It's really important. Family-like brotherly love is what I'm going to suggest to you. It requires a tender heart. And I love the last one, referring to the mind. It requires humility. It it requires, you know, not thinking more highly of oneself. It requires assuming the best of others. Does it not? Yeah, it does. So here's how things like that get solved in the world, right? You know, because let me ask you a question. Politically, is the world unified? (laughs) All right, okay. So, but why are there such divisions in the world, do you think, when it comes to politics, identity, all these... Why do you think there's so much division? Well, I'm going to give you a little hint. One of the reasons is, well, Satan, <laughs> the kingdom of darkness. That's, well, that would be one. But another one is this. People get to a point in their discussions, whether it's politically or this subject or that, with their family, their friends, their coworkers, and somebody is prone to say at some point, well, let's just agree to disagree. Can I ask you a question? Has the utterance of that phrase ever led to unity in the culture? Then can I ask you or implore you, let's not use that in the church. I've heard that before planting the Rock Church, and I've heard that since planting the Rock Church. Well, on that 
doctrine or that theology or what you believe, Glenn, or what this our church believes or what they believe or what he believes or she believes. Let's just agree to disagree. That will not produce unity. The outside pressures know that. The outside pressures know that. So what's the solution? Well, I would suggest to you, the scripture teaches us that we should be Bereans. We should listen, reason together, not from a blog article, not from a book, not from a podcaster's opinions, but from where? Hello? Somebody say it out loud, please. The word of God from the scriptures. Thank you. Reason together. From the scriptures. So I want to, I'm, I'm thinking of doing it maybe next week or in the week too. I'll talk to the elders who didn't mention it at the elder meeting yesterday morning, so I won't make it official. But maybe, maybe putting, up, putting up something like, ask the elders. Ask Pastor Glenn. God, friends, can I just implore you? Church, can I implore you? If you're watching online, listening here today, you got questions? You got doubts? Talk about it. There's going to be, I want to suggest to you this. There, there are going to be situations where um, we are going to have a, tr- a difficult time coming to a complete oneness of mind on these things. I understand, but I also want to implore you this, that my experience will tell, you, will tell me and will tell you that 95 to 98% of all of the teachings of Scripture fall into one of two categories, true or false. There are a few things that could be called disputable matters. As the Rock Church, we have a, a lovely process called membership. Anyone been through that? And, and we have something called a covenant agreement that we ask people to sign at the end of the membership class. Just, just four points. I mean, we go through all of the doctrines, all of the teachings, all of the things that we believe as a church, and we back them up with Scripture and all the rest of it. And there's questions. People have some good questions. They should be asked. And the covenant agreement just asks people to sign off on four basic things. And the first one I want to put on screen for you is this. It's the very first thing that we, we ask people to sign off on. It is this, I will protect the what? Unity of the rock church. How? Well, First Peter, by acting in love towards one another. Secondly, by refusing to gossip. If I had to highlight not just the rock church, but in the church in North America in general, uh, the greatest sin. It is not some sexually immoral sins. It is gossip. It is gossip. It creates more division and lack of unity in local churches than anything else. By resolving conflicts, by using Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Again, in my experience, in our church in 13, 14 years, this process has been avoided like the plague by people who have been divisive. I'm just being honest with you. But that's what we ask people to do. And lastly, by following the leaders. Yes. You know what that means, right? Yes, it means submitting to authority in your life. There's a great call. That creates a lot of unity. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. Whatever church you go to or decide to go to, that's what you should be doing. You should be submitting to the authority of the local elders in that church. And if you can't, you should go somewhere else. If for some reason they're not spiritual enough or holy enough or right enough. So now Peter moves to his examples of the pressures that do come from outside, and we'll just look at these briefly as we come to our conclusion, and how we should respond to Christ- as Christians to the outside pressures, because you know what? How we respond to the outside pressures will speak a lot into how unified we are inside the church. 
verse 9 he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I got to tell you, in my early life, in my teens, uh, I was taught how to become pugilistic, okay? <laughs> Part of the reason for that was my dad was a boxer. He was about 5'10", maybe 5'11", and he noticed at about 14, 15 years of age, I had stopped growing. And he was thinking, I need to protect Glenn. So I need to teach him how to defend himself, how to box. Well, it came in handy a couple of times. But you know what? I also thought, you know what? You know, I'll show you, right? So, so I, I, I was taught to a conflict that the, the way to re- respond to a conflict was to fight. Certainly to fight back, right? I had another intendency, which we'll see in the next few verses. But let, just, to, just to move on from this, Peter speaks about next. He, what he gets to is this. He, he's trying to say this to us and to the church there. But he's basically saying this. Do not do that, but do this instead. Don't do that. Don't be pugilistic like Glenn. Like, don't, don't do those kind of things. Don't respond with those kind of things as a member of the family of God. Those attacks are going to come, yes, but don't respond that way. Instead, do this. Don't seek how you can get back at someone who's done you or someone else in the church harm, but instead, look, bless them. What? Makarios? <laughs> yeah, bless them. Bless them. Do good for them. And then he adds the why. Because, look, this is what you're called to as a Christian and as a member of the family of God. You're called to pass on the blessings that are already yours Kingdom blessings, in other words. You're called to pass those on. You're called to express your poverty of spirit, your mourning over sin, your meekness and your humility. And how you respond to evil and reviling and persecutions is critically important. So again, behind all of Peter's teachings and the Holy Spirit's intent, I will suggest, is that we remember that our calling is to represent Christ well and his kingdom well in this world to the community at large. Why? So that they will come to faith in Christ. They will see our good works, our good attitudes, our good responses, and they too will come to faith in Christ. Verses 10 and 11, he goes on, for or because whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So so like I implied in the last, uh, related to the last verse, um, I discovered something as, uh, as a young man that I was actually, you know, I, I thought anyway, like I, God has really gifted me with a really keen mind, right? And, and the ability to debate and, and the ability to argue. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I learned how to really actually to lash out with my tongue. Oh, I, I looked like I was being really humble and stuff, but I was, no, I was not. It was very prideful. And actually what I discovered, I was building in myself was just a sharper tongue. Nah, none of you. It's just, it's, I'm the only one with the t-shirt. So Peter nails it here when he plainly points out that the good life that you and I as now members of the kingdom of God are to live out is a life in which we are blessed with all the heavenly blessings, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, already. And if we want those blessings to be an actual reality in our lives today, we better Hold our tongues. Bite our tongues, in fact, at certain times. 
turn the other cheek, retreat from an argument or a contentious situation, and better, seek a peaceful resolution. Not a, let's agree to disagree, but seek a blessing. The idea that we are blessed to be a blessing comes from passages just like this. It's where the idea actually comes from. And so, despite suffering and persecutions the way we endure, and God knows that we're enduring them, by the way. He he knows that we're enduring these, these persecutions. And that's what we see in verse 12, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That last part, God will bring justice. If you've been treated evilly, persecuted wrongly, he knows it. He'll deal with them. He'll deal with that. We don't have to. We don't have to be pugilistic. So the one of the ways in which he blesses us when we do good, when despite, again, as I've said, the persecutions and sufferings that we endure that he knows are truly unfair, is that when we, we pray to him and ask him to hear our prayers, he's open to us. Now, God is always open to hear us, but the implication here is when we are obedient in this way and he can see us doing that, he's like, that's my kid. Ask me for anything. Just ask me for anything right now, because I will bless you. Now, in conclusion, let me take that back to being a parent, right? Just imagine, look at it this way. It might look just like an earthly parent, mother or father, when we observe our, our, our child, surprisingly, doing something really right, <laughs> behaving really, really well. In, in fact, when we say, go, go to the bathroom and brush your teeth and go jump in bed and we'll come in a minute and pray with you. And they do what you say. <laughs> wait, we just wait until they get older. It's going to be a challenge. The way they treat their siblings and friends kindly and then, listen, and then at that point, the next day, they come to you and they ask you for something. Mom, Dad, could I have this or could I do that? Are you not more prone at that point to say, yeah, yeah, I, I want to bless you. And so my question for you today as we, as we leave is this. If we as human beings, as fallen parents or friends, can do that for our children, how much more can our Heavenly Father bless us when we behave like the kind of children he's called us to be? Amen? Let's pray.